episode of the Trajectory Africa Track 11, the final one of the series, my guest artist is Babakar Sek. Babakar is a senior investment professional with Proparco who's designing and deploying a 200 million euro venture capital program to fund and support African entrepreneurs while also managing a global investment portfolio of banks, insurance, and fintech. Prior to Proparco, Babakar led key areas of strategy and development for AXA, a 1 trillion euro insurance firm working under the chairman and CEO. Building on our exploration in track 10 of how GPs raise money from LPs, we're turning the table to get the LP perspective. We've been on a wide-ranging journey across the last 10 episodes to understand the key characteristics of African markets, the opportunities presented by digital commerce, SME financing, and fintech, and how they power the broader venture opportunity, what drives fund performance in terms of economics and structure, and how funds raise money. But arguably, all roads lead to LPs because they fund the GPs who fund startups. If you want to know what's right or wrong with the venture ecosystem, the LP pool is a good place to start, or in the case of the series, end. In this episode, Babakar and I discuss how he started his career in venture capital and private equity, Proparco's distinct characteristics as an LP and how it evaluates funds, how DFI's ESG standards benefit African VC, common mistakes that GPs make while fundraising and how the process works against them, why African women and first-time GPs struggle to raise money, what drives fund underperformance generally and how LPs can help, and what micro and macro factors will drive future adjustments in the African VC space. I hope you enjoy our last show. Babaka, welcome to The Trajectory Africa. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Likewise, it's a pleasure to be with you on this show. Thank you for the invitation. You're very welcome. I'm actually quite excited to be having this conversation for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I learned a lot from you about how and why LPs invest and how their decision-making processes work while conducting research for Chasing Outliers, which is a report on early stage investing I co-published in January. The second reason is that I've actually inadvertently created a series within a series. So the Trajectory Africa is actually a podcast series that, as the name suggests, focuses on the trajectory of African tech, entrepreneurship, and VC. But within that, (laughs) another small series is emerging around institutional capital. There has been one episode focused on investor relations or how to raise a fund and engage with LPs. There's this one, which is focused on the LP perspective. And then there will be a third one delving into an alternative alternative to the traditional LPGP model and an alternative to raising institutional capital. So those three things together, I think, should tell quite an interesting story. But in any case, let's dive in here, but let's start by learning a little bit more about you. So Babakar, can you please share with us a bit about your background, as well as how you became an Africa-focused investor and an LP with Proparco? Sure. Thank you, Teo. So I'm originally from Senegal and France, and I grew up in Senegal. And after my studies, I started working in in investment banking, and and then I worked in the financial sector. And I had the chance to to witness some of the early moves and players of tech companies in the African ecosystem. So notably the investment that my company completed into Jumia in 2015. And so that that gave me an early interest and look into what was happening in the Africa tech ecosystem. And really what I saw was the potential to really build a new economy in a continent where the largest businesses and companies were really still companies that dated from another age and that had not adapted to the latest technology, the latest tools, and were not completely addressing all the needs of the populations. And so I joined Proparco three years ago focusing on investments in the tech space as well as in the financial sector. 
And it's been a very exciting journey, investing in, in funds and also in, in young companies that are really trying to, to transform Africa as we know it today. Brilliant. Yes, I could imagine it's been exciting because the space has certainly been heating up in the last few years. Arguably, venture investing on the continent isn't that old, maybe a decade and some change. So certainly more of the action has been emerging in the last few years. So let's let's talk a little bit more about the context of this experience. So in terms of Proparco, can you talk about the mission, the thesis, at least when it comes to, well, the thesis generally, and then when it comes to VFC investing and then the investment mandate or mandates? Sure. So Proparco is the French Development Finance Institution. So we're the French version of the International Finance Corporation, if you will. So our, our mandate is to invest in companies and investment funds that target companies across Africa and other developing countries in the world. More specifically, when it comes to venture capital investing, we focus on young companies from the seed to series B stage, and we have several tools at our disposal. We can invest directly into VC funds. We also invest directly into startups. and. We also launched last year a new product called the Bridge Fund, through which we provide venture debt to young companies. And really the focus is companies that are bringing innovation to sectors that have a lot of impact on the lives of Africans. So that can be healthcare, financial services, agriculture, logistics, for instance. And so that's what we have been doing. And the mandate in the coming years is going to be to invest more and more into this sector and, and support its growth and development, because we believe it can be a driver of growth and transformation in, in African economies and societies. Right. So it's my impression, and my impression could be incorrect, that venture debt is an underappreciated, underdeployed source of capital for growing companies. And so what I'm curious to understand is why did Proparco decide to launch this this bridge fund to solve what problem essentially and how is it going? Yes, sure. So we decided to launch the Brit Fund at the end of 2020 because we were in a period where it was very difficult for us to complete any kind of due diligence because of the restrictions on travel caused by the global pandemic. And so we wanted to have a product that was easier to deploy than equity, faster to deploy. And the specific need that we wanted to address was all the companies whose fundraising rounds had been postponed because of the pandemic and who needed some cash and financing to go through to the next fundraising. And so that's where really it came from. We have received a lot of interest in this product. We received several hundred applications, wow. out of which we have selected a dozen that, that we have been uh, investing in. So far, I think we have completed five investments and we have five to seven more that are going to be deployed by the end of the year. So in our opinion, it has been very successful because the companies have embraced the product and the way it is structured. And we really look forward to, to continuing the deployment of this fund. Yes. And I'm sure a lot of startups who have been kind of holding it together during this COVID <laughs> period, but want to continue to grow, we'll look forward to you continuing it as, as well. I think it's a great addition, in my humble opinion, to the ecosystem. 
So we've been talking about Proparco a little bit, but I'd like to get a little bit more detail because presumably all LPs aren't built alike. I mean, even all DFIs aren't built alike. So can you talk through the type of LP Proparco is and how its goals, approaches, and processes may differ from other LPs or other types of LPs? Of course. I think this is a very important question that you're asking because the LP investment fund or LPGP relationship is not very well known, especially in the VC space in Africa. And it is really important that we increase the the mutual understanding between these two stakeholders if we want the ecosystem to develop. So just in case people wonder what an LP is, so LP is a limited partner. It's all the funds or individuals or corporates who are going to be committing capital into into a private equity or venture capital fund. And I would qualify Proparco as a DFI LP. What do I mean by that? We're not a classical commercial investor. So when we're looking at a project, we don't just look at the returns. The returns are very important because returns are what makes impact investing impact investing. It means that you put $100, you're going to get more and you will reinvest more money into the sector and scale the impact. So returns are really important, but we also look at other factors. One of those factors that we look at is impact. Impact is defined differently for different LPs, but generally for development finance institutions like Proparco, uh, CDC of the UK, DEG of Germany, FMO of the Netherlands, who are co-investment partners that we work with on, on several projects. We mean impact by how is a fund going to invest in companies that help to attain the sustainable development goals that have been defined by the United Nations. And I think that is the most agreed upon definition of impact. And then if you go more into the details, impact can mean a few other things as well. We have three big focus areas. One is climate change. So renewable energy, energy efficiency. The other one is gender. So any kind of projects that promote financing and access to economic opportunities for women. And the third one is SME finance. So financing to small and mid-sized companies. And I would say that those are some of the defining factors of impact. And finally, I would add that all the elements around integrity, compliance with the law, Uh, a high level of transparency or qualities that we look for with our investment fund partners because we look to support them in the long term. And so we're really looking for partners that share the same values that we have. Yes, the idea of value sharing, at least in terms of the research for Chasing Outliers, came up quite a bit, particularly with respect to situations where a company or companies was I guess, launching in sectors that maybe historically have been a bit difficult to fund, so health and education, for example, and we're starting with impact investment, but then some of them were transitioning into commercial capital. And so the strategic priorities and the values of the commercial and impact investors were sources of tension in some cases, uh, because you have investors who are looking for X and investors who are looking for Y. Arguably, in fact, investors maybe try to 
combine the two. But the point being is I can understand how important it is for your investments to be in line with you from a values perspective. Yes. And currently, I would say that the VC space is growing more and more dynamic, which is a really good thing. Compared with private equity, which has been around on the continent for the past 20 years, and which is still dominated by public money, so funding from DFIs and DFI-like players, I feel that venture capital is having a much faster development curve in terms of attracting local investors, mostly local high net worth investors and some corporates, but also international ones. And I think this is a very good sign because it will enable the sector to grow much faster than if it has to rely on just one set of actors. At the same time, DFIs are important to have in the conversation because they are the ones who will be pushing on management of environmental and social risks, having a very strong governance, a very strong organizational efficiency and internal control. And that is one of the reasons why private equity in Africa today is one of the most advanced ESG markets in the private equity space in the world. Mm. It's thanks to DFIs. And I think VCs also will benefit from that. That's a really interesting insight that I've actually never heard before. <laughs> before. And maybe I have a two-part question here. So, And the answer to the first one may be obvious, but why is it important for for the ESG standards or framework to be so developed? How will that benefit VC? And then maybe to lean into your other observation that local high net worth individuals and corporates are starting to get involved, who actually is investing in Africa-focused funds? Who are the main sources of capital? Yes, two, two very good questions. So to the first question, ESG is several things. I think one of the key things that ESG includes is negative screening lists. So all the DFIs have what we call an exclusion list, which are all the sectors that we don't want to support. So we cannot invest mm. in those sectors. And the funds that we invest in don't invest in those sectors. And these include sectors like casinos, gambling, weapon manufacturing. So a, a number of sectors that have negative spillovers in the economy, if, if you want to summarize it. And that is helpful because it helps focus the funds on other sectors that can have a positive spillover. Another way that we address ESG risks is because we will be asking the fund managers for each investment they make in some high-risk sectors, such as agriculture, to do some additional due diligence related to what are the potential environmental and social risks of the business model of the company. So for agriculture, it could be making sure that the land that they're renting or that they're buying has not been expropriated from local farmers and has gone through a certain process of vetting before they get it. If it's financial inclusion companies such as fintechs, it's ensuring that they have the proper KYC, anti-money laundering and anti-financing of terrorism processes to ensure that they don't enable people who are not well-meaning and who are potentially on sanctions lists to do financial transactions and get access to financing. So those are two ways in which ESG can really contribute to the development of the economies because it involves to look at all the negative spillovers or the most important negative spillovers that could come from certain business models. That's a really, really interesting perspective. So <laughs> at the risk of oversimplifying, it's almost like the ESG 
keeps the mess out of the equation. So you're only really focused on opportunities that have the potential, at least, for positive spillovers, which is really useful. And so in terms of who is funding VC funds, what does the landscape look like now? I I cannot give you statistics on this because I don't have them. However, what we see on some of the most recent funds that we have been talking to is that you have, for instance, in some of the large markets like Egypt or Nigeria, large financial institutions locally like banks and insurance companies that are trying to put some capital to work in VC funds because they have witnessed some exits. So in Nigeria, it was the exit of Paystack. In Egypt, it was uh, the Fori IPO, which has been very successful and has motivated a lot of players to look more into the sector. And so that's one type of institutions, although there are still constraints because most social security funds and pension funds are, are not able to invest due to regulatory reasons. And another set of players is high net worth individuals who have in some cases been an angel investor in a company and then they realize good returns. And they're looking to invest in VC funds to get a broader exposure and rely also on professionals whose job it is to identify those companies and support them. Right. And so one of the things I've heard quite a bit anecdotally is that in as much as, for example, high net worth individuals are getting involved and angel Well, angel funds is more about uh, individual companies, but in as much as high net worth individuals and banks and such are getting involved, there is still a need for local institutional capital to fund these funds. So basically to use people's money, citizens' money, (laughs) for talking about pension funds to invest in innovation. But you mentioned that there are restrictions on that. So from your perspective, do you think it's actually necessary and or useful for local institutional capital to get involved? And if so, what do you think needs to change to make that more possible? I think it is indispensable. I think it is one of the most important things that has not been achieved yet in the private equity and venture capital space in Africa. Still today, local investors represent around 20 percent maximum of the shareholding in the funds. And I I think this is a pity because overall, the, the result is that most of the returns are therefore going outside of the continent. And I think as DFIs, one thing we would like to see is that the funds that we support in the beginning then get enough returns and traction to be able to mobilize local investors. We would really like to see that what can be done I think, as someone very smart has said before me, the proof is in the returns. You need to have an industry that can sustainably deliver high returns for commercial investors locally to to commit to it. And I think that has not been the case of the private equity industry. If you look at the statistics that are available, globally, private equity has been underperforming government bonds in Africa. And so if you want to make a case to a national pension fund that has a very high and growing amount of liabilities towards its uh, policyholders that it should commit to venture capital, you should show them that this is an industry that has been reliably delivering an appropriate risk-adjusted return. And so given the very high risk associated to startups on the continent, you need returns that should be at least in the high teens if you want to get those investors to come. And I think that is the challenge of the VC industry. 
And I'm not sure to what extent the industry is currently really focused on that. But I think that is really important for the long-term success. They should not just rely on the other sources of capital that are available. So there are a couple of points that I'd like to drill down on here. And some of it has to do with just defining terms. So when you say that the return should be in the teens, is it in terms of internal rates of return, hurdle rates, something else entirely? Yes, I mean internal rates of returns. Overall, private equity has been below 8% in terms of returns for the investors on average. Although some, some funds are outperforming, overall it's, it's not good. And government bonds on the continent can deliver usually between 5 and and 12%, depending mm. on the country. And those bonds are probably one of the safer assets that you can get. So why would a pension fund invest in a VC fund that will deliver 10% when it can get 12% from a government bond? Exactly. No, that makes sense. So in order for that capital to be unlocked, it has to be competitive in terms of the returns that it promises vis-a-vis the risk that is involved in making the investment. So I guess the next obvious question is, why do you think the performance is less than what it should be or what, what is expected, I guess, is the better way to put it? Africa is not an easy place to, to do business. I think you have a lot of volatility in terms of regulation, macroeconomics, and that does not help. If I'm very specific, I'd give two reasons. One reason is foreign exchange. Often the funds are denominated in euro or dollar, and you have very high rates of inflation in certain African countries, and you also have devaluations. So when you buy a Nigerian asset in 2015 and then the currency loses 50% in 2016, even if your company has been growing 20% per year, you still have 40% depreciation in your investment. And so that's one factor that is more at the macro level. At the micro level, you have a very high variance between the value add that some funds are bringing and the one that others are bringing. And I think there's a lot of communication around what value is brought to the company. But I think it has, yeah, you you see that the funds that bring more value really get to support the founding teams. They usually get better returns. I think that's one of the areas where the industry can improve. And maybe finally, what makes investment very challenging on the continent is that very simply, there is not enough money overall. There's some money in PE funds, there's some money in large corporates, but globally, the economy is not so developed and leverage is not so developed that the returns can be high enough. And I think we need many more investors and entrepreneurs to build and develop businesses so that there will be more exit opportunities for the funds. And I think that that is a key challenge. VC has not faced it yet because it's still in its infancy. But I think in the next five years, we'll have the real test. Because as the saying goes, you're not an investor when you spend the money. You're an investor when you realize your investment, meaning when when you sell it (laughs) at the end. And so it's quite easy to buy stock in a company and and bet on the future and and have high valuations on paper. But until it's realized, it's, it's not an investment. And I suppose that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of catalyzing the venture ecosystem as well, in the sense that one of the sources of the underperformance is the fact that that class is still looking for exits that will then allow funds to continue investing, that will then 
convince LPs to continue investing that will then invite or encourage or incentivize potential LPs that have not been engaged to get engaged because the numbers start to look a lot more attractive then. So at the end of the day, in five years, when the bill comes due, hopefully the balance will be positive, in which case some of these systemic challenges could be addressed. But then I guess that that leads to two other questions. So the first question is, you mentioned that one of the differentiators is the value addition of the institutional capital provider to the fund. So what type of support actually is meaningful in order to help the fund develop and to perform? Oh, sorry, actually there I meant the value add that is brought by the fund to its investee companies. Ah, okay. Okay, okay, okay. So you're basically saying that the funds themselves really have to put in work to get to portfolios and portfolio companies that can then generate the exits, which then stimulate the flywheel. Yes. Yes, because you you have some funds that, that do it really well. But I think you have to be built for purpose to do that. It means that when you're structuring the fund as a GP, you need to wonder what are the needs of my customers? Just like any entrepreneurs, what are the needs of my customers? You have two customers. One set of customers are the LPs and the other set of customers are the companies you invest in. So what do they need? How do I support them? And do I have enough budget from the management fees that I get to support them? Or if I don't, what else can I do to support them? And I have seen some very innovative VC fund managers operating new models in that space, for instance, having an array of partnerships with lawyers, accountants, business development firms, and having them on retainer to support the companies because they didn't have enough teams to do it themselves and because also they prefer to have specialist knowledge. I think there are many ways to do it, but you need really to be committed to it to find solutions because it's never easy. Because on the one hand, your LPs they will want, of course, to have a lower level of fees to ensure that more of the money goes to financing the companies, while you at the same time need to have enough budget to accomplish everything that you have promised to your investees. And I think that's where you need to really strike the right balance and also think innovatively. But it's easy to say from where I'm standing. It's, it's not easy to do <laughs> in practice. No, I'm sure you're right that it's not easy to do. And I got the impression, again, in conducting research for Chasing Outliers, that there are actually varying opinions on how useful, let's call it high-intensity portfolio support is. And of course, I am oversimplifying greatly because to your point, you're building something that's fit for purpose. So depending on your model and your expectations, it may or may not make sense to invest in actively supporting startups at that level, although there's an argument to be made that given how hard it is, <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> active support is is in your best interest. But I essentially heard everything from you know, we only get involved if we have very specific, let's call it sector expertise, or we have something to offer in terms of being an investor, having seen the same types of events multiple times. So a new product launch or an M&A, whereas a founder may have only seen that once or a couple of times. So that's one extreme to having a full-on platform where it's almost kind of like a management company where there are legal services, accounting services, business development services, website development services that are deployed to the portfolio. And then something in the middle is around just having 
robust portfolio services that maybe go in for specific areas that emerge during due diligence that are challenges. So maybe it's governance and, and such. But I would say from the outside looking in, it would seem that, again, given how tough the terrain is, focusing on being a value-added investor, however you translate that, uh, should, be a, should be a priority. But this actually segues quite nicely into what I'd wanted to ask you about what you look for. So it sounds like you're, you're paying attention to what type of support funds provide to their portfolio companies. But when you are evaluating funds for potential investment, what other things do you look for and what is the evaluation process like? Yes, very good question. We, we get this question a lot because often fund managers don't know what we're looking for. I will try to give you a high-level overview of, of the key areas uh, of interest for us. First and foremost is the team. And it's important that I say team because we don't get satisfied with having a, a fund manager with just one partner. Mm. Uh, we need at least two, ideally more, because you want to be sure that if something happens to one person in the team, the fund can still continue. Because these are long-term vehicles. These funds are usually 10 to 12 years in lifetime. Sometimes it gets extended a bit more. And so you want to be sure not only that you have several people who can continue delivering the initial promise, but also that they can continue to do it together. You don't want to be investing in a fund where you have, say, two partners and after three years, they they realize that they don't like to work with each other and <laughs> one of them just leaves. And the other one is probably left there and he needed the skills of his partner to bring the value add or maybe his partner was the investment expert and now you're left with just one person. And so that's really challenging. So we evaluate how long partners have known each other, have they worked together in the past, what brought them together in this project. So we ask a lot of questions around this. We spend a lot of time with them just to get to know them personally and, and get comfort around the idea that they will still be around in 10 years when, you know, the proof time comes, so when, when the exit time comes. And so that's one very important question. It's around the team cohesion. And then we also look at the team track record. It's trickier in the VC space in Africa because it's not like you had 50 VC funds with an institutional framework operating here. So we have a little bit more flexibility on new teams. But it's important to see that the team has experience in transactions, that it is well connected in the space, that it brings a distinctive edge and I insist on this distinctive edge. VC is a market, and fund managers are chasing opportunities. And what we see increasingly is that for the best deals, everyone is on it. All the best fund managers are competing. And what makes the difference is their reputation based on how well they have worked with other founders, how well they are appreciated, a specific value add that they can bring. As you mentioned before, you don't have to be an expert in everything or to build a platform, but you can be an expert in one sector or you can be really, really good at supporting companies in their digital marketing and growth. And this is something that can distinguish you from other investors and give you space in a very highly competitive round. But we really want to see this distinctive edge. What are you bringing to the market that was not there before or not? sufficiently there before and how can you demonstrate that you will be able to deliver it 
I think this is one very big question that we ask. And so there are many sub-questions to this, which people sometimes think those questions are the key questions, but this is really the key one. And the sub-questions are, what is your investment strategy? Uh, What does your target portfolio look like? What does your team look like below the partners, but also the rest of the team? What is your pipeline of companies? And how do you plan to invest in them? Will you be a very small minority? significant minority? Will you be investing in pre-seed, seed, series A, series B? How many companies will each person in your team monitor? It's really the whole setup that we look at. And whether you're able to articulate a coherent vision of the value you bring, how you bring it, and convince us that you can bring it. And so once we have that, we have the basis of, let's say, what we need to have a confirmation of our interest in a fund. Then we will look more specifically at big areas like how is the fund structured? What are the terms? Not only commercial terms, but also what will be the governance of the fund? Do you have an investment committee that includes independent members or it's 100% internal? How is the carrot distributed in your team? At least at Proparco, but I also know at other DFIs, we like to see that the investment team has carried because otherwise they don't have a vested interest in making money in the long run. They rather have a vested interest in getting their bonus at the end of the year, which is not aligned with the LPs. And so all that is part of the coherence we look at. So we look at all these areas. We look at what is the ESG policy, how it will be implemented, what is the investment process and so on. And then we will conduct like all due diligences uh, a high number of reference calls to former colleagues, former customers or partners or companies they supported. And so that's what enables us to come to an investment decision at the end. Right. And that sounds like quite a comprehensive process. But I suppose if I were to oversimplify a lot, it comes down to the unique selling proposition or value proposition, the investment strategy, and then the proof of or the outline of how you're going to operationalize that strategy. So I have another question here, but there's just one one point of clarification I want to make. So you said that you like to see carry distribution for partners. I didn't actually know that not having carry was an option. So if a partner or partners is not proposing carry, what would be the alternative? No, actually what what I was saying is we like to see carry to be distributed beyond the partners. Uh, Ah. Some funds, it's excessively skewed toward the partners, which means that your investment director or your investment associate will not have any carry. And so that is not an optimal setup because you don't have an alignment interest between the people who will actually go into the nitty gritty details of the deal and the investors. So we want the carry. Of course, it's not split evenly within the team because the partners are generally the founders of the fund manager. And so they get more. But we want to be sure that everyone has a long term interest in the fund being successful. I'm 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 ashamed and <laughs> sad to admit that I didn't actually know that carry distribution was an option. I just assume, <laughs> I just assumed that associates were going to be exploited. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they would just put in the work, get the experience with the hope that they would move up into a position where they'd be compensated appropriately or they would start their own 
funds. But yeah, it absolutely makes sense to incentivize all through the organization because we heard quite a bit again in the research about how lack of proper incentivization for fund managers when they are managing funds can be an issue and certainly can be an issue for startups as well. Everyone needs to understand why they're putting in the amount of labor that they're putting in. So thank you very much for for, for raising that point. So again, all of this sounds very comprehensive and logical, right? I mean, it makes sense that you'd be interested in the value proposition and the investment strategy and the mechanics and the economics and such. But there has been a lot of conversation recently around how hard it is for African fund managers, African women fund managers, first-time fund managers who basically fall into multiple buckets to be able to raise funds. So my question is essentially, are there any parts of this process as kind of reasonable and neutral as it sounds that make it difficult for these parties to be able to raise money? All of them? <laughs> no, but but seriously, uh, I agree. We We see very few, I mean, not very few, we don't see as many African fund managers raising funds. We don't see enough women raising funds or women-led funds. And I think this is a challenge that, at least at, at the level of the DFIs, we care a lot about. I think raising a fund, people sometimes underestimate it. And I don't mean to say that women or Africans are, are not as well prepared as the other ones, but I think it is an industry that has a very, very high barrier to entry. So let me describe what barriers to entry I see in the sector. I think one barrier to entry is that you need to already have money to be able to raise a fund. And this mm. is a big challenge because it takes a long time to raise a fund. You will often see that fund managers take two, three, maybe sometimes more years to raise their first fund. And so during all this time, you need to... To, to feed yourself, uh, feed your family, pay for lawyer fees, continue to be sourcing deals, maintain a small team, and, and that costs a lot of money. And, and this is a big barrier to entry because you will mostly have people who already had a large amount of resources or access to, to those resources who will be able to, to, to make this sacrifice, to make this investment. Right. A second reason is also that as I mentioned, as part of the due diligence process, the top three things that we look at are, you know, team, unique selling proposition, and prove us that you can make returns. And the third and, and, and second point are, are very related in that you often need someone who has already been investing because, exactly. you, you, you know, they have to prove that they can invest and you cannot prove it just by saying it unless you have founded and sold two very good companies, which also takes a lot of time. And the investment space itself has a lot of barriers to entry for women in particular. And I mean, we see more and more Africans in the sector, but it's still not as many as we would want to see. And I think those are also barriers to entry for new fund managers. I think those two areas are really key areas that make it more challenging. And finally, I think... It's also, it's, it's good that we're demanding in this space. And I think ecosystem players and influencers like yourself, you need to, to push this topic so that it's on the radar of everyone. And at the same time, I think that it, it takes time because when you look at the people who have launched 
some of the funds, private equity or VC funds on the continent, they had been already in the industry 20 years ago. So it's a long process where you go from, you know, someone starts in the industry as an associate and then maybe 10 years later, they're a director. And then five years after that, they raise a fund. But we, we need to be sure that we're building the pipeline for it. And that starts now. These are really keen insights, Babakar. And I think you're right. I think this type of dialogue needs to be had more often, which is one of the reasons why I was very excited that you agreed to join for this episode, because a lot of these dynamics I wasn't actually aware of, right, before doing some of the research. And in fact, we didn't even initially focus on LPs when designing the research around early stage investing. We were almost exclusively focused on founders and GPs. It was only after listening to GPs talk about the dynamics of the relationship where I said, okay, we need to fill out the picture a little bit and understand the LP part of the equation a little bit better. Totally resonate, although I don't have personal experience with this, on your point about the amount of money it takes to sit, well, I shouldn't say to sit around, but to basically to hold on for two, three, four, five years and go through this process and, and pay lawyers. I was actually listening to a session given by Monique Woodard. So she's an African-American woman GP who, who runs Cake. And that's the point that she made quite explicitly that you actually just need the resources to stick around long enough to get to the other side, assuming you're going to. And a lot of people can't do it. <laughs> They'll try. But after a year or two of earning nothing with no secure prospects in place, they have to you know, move along and, and get a job or, or, or something. <laughs> I think the other really, really, really important point is the idea of timeline. So the idea that it takes years to create an investor. There's a way in which I think it's more common maybe in, in the Silicon Valley version of events than on the continent, although I think some of that culture is starting to leak over the Atlantic. There's a way in which getting into investment or even launching a company is being portrayed as a kind of a wonderkind type of situation. So the 19-year-old hoodie wearer who becomes the CEO of Facebook or the 19-and-a-half-year-old graduate who starts a podcast about VCs and then is raising multiple funds Five years later, I don't, I don't know how old 20-minute VC is, but it's not to denigrate these stories or dismiss them, but I think it's important to sort of understand that generally speaking, these careers are built over time. And so if you want to see an African fund manager who has invested before with teams, who has enough money to be able to hold out for three years, that work to your point starts now. So I really, really appreciate you bringing these things up. You summarized it very well. And I think it's really important that we have that in mind when we think about what needs to be done to enable more fund managers. No, I I agree 100%. There's almost no discussion around popping the top off of how you become an investment professional or how you manage a career as an investment professional on the continent. And I think those would be amazing conversations to have. But I do want to ask, this question has been basically needling me and it's it's actually your fault because you're the one <laughs> you're the one who made me aware of this dynamic. So the question is there are different types of and I don't know all of the economic terms, but there are different types of terms I guess related to economics, but there's one in particular that has to do with distribution 
of carries. So in the American version, you can earn carry on a deal per deal basis. So if you meet the hurdle on deal one, then you earn carry on deal one and so forth. In the European structure, unless you've met the hurdle for the entire fund, you don't get carried. Does this affect how easily or not so easily some of these fund managers can perform and then live to continue investing? I don't think it does fundamentally affect the fund managers because this is a structure that, at least on my side, I've seen mostly on on private equity funds rather than venture capital funds. Because given the distribution of returns that is very skewed towards a small number of companies, uh, the American model is is not totally relevant because you might have just one winner and, and a lot of losers in a fund. Fundamentally, on, on average, there is a difference, but the difference is not as big as one would expect in terms of how much the fund manager is going to get compared to the European uh, way of calculating this. So I, I don't think this is... a uh, a big blocker. I think it, of course, it would benefit fund managers, but I think more fundamentally, the real issue is, can you have fund structures in terms, and I'm speaking of economic terms here, that enable teams to be large enough and well-paid enough that you can attract the right talent to, to support the right companies. And that is the big challenge, especially at the earlier stage. And on the continent, what has been happening is for private equity, and now we see it for VC, funds raising larger and larger amounts because you need a certain level of fees in order to have the best teams. But then that means you're not serving the same customers anymore. And so that has been a challenge of evolving strategies more to fit the needs of the fund manager rather than to fit the needs of the startups. And so I think the VC industry is still very new. So we don't have that trend yet, but we have to be, I mean, I think fund managers have to be. Uh, wary of that and make sure that they're always you know addressing a need in the market i think that is more the challenge than the the fee structure which is marginal in my opinion no i very much appreciate the clarification on that and i think you've raised a really important point that was in f- <laughs> that was in fact the focus of the very first episode of the trajectory Africa. Basically, my co-publisher Tony Chen sought to because you mentioned that it's important as a fund manager to solve the problems of the companies in your portfolio. And so he actually sought out to write small strategic checks because that's where that's where a lot of the need is, but from an economics perspective, the amount of work you would need to do to basically close a fund, let's say, that was deploying that strategy, the math didn't actually work out. And so what happens is funds will move upstream, if you will, so that to your point, they can get the the people and the monetary incentivization to be able to continue the work, which, which leads to another question. So I think we've done a really good job, and thank you for this, outlining what the challenges are. But what do you think the solutions are, and, and how can LPs specifically play a role? LPs needs to give transparent feedback. That's the only way we're going to move forward. And so why don't they? I think they're worried sometimes to offend the fund managers. I think you, you need to build a trusting relationship to be able to do that. And fund managers should, I mean, they do ask for it, but I think it's important that we have more forums where this exchange can take place. Right. And so in your view, what do GPs get wrong? What can they do better in terms of engaging with LPs in the fundraising process? What would you consider best practices? 
I think it's important to be very transparent when questions are asked about some specific weaknesses. I think sometimes GPs complain that we don't give feedback, but sometimes we give feedback and, and the GP persists with certain features to its approach, like a solo GP or not really addressing the key risks that we see in the operational setup, which can be related to investment committee or investment strategy. And I feel that when the GP is really good at making a synthesis of the feedback that they get from the LPs and then taking what they can address from it and addressing it, even if not all our concerns are addressed, then I think it's much easier to build a trusting relationship and and feel that we can work together. So Babakar, as we bring this conversation to a close, I'd like to wrap up with the Trajectory Africa Signature questions. And what we're trying to do is basically map the trajectory of African VC and tech. So based on your experience, where would you say the space is going and what would you say the key indicators of the trajectory are? Thank you, Teo, for this great question. It's a question that we ask ourselves, I'd say, almost every day although we still haven't found the, the right answer. <laughs> so I will, I will just try to, to give you my best shot here. I think the VC industry has really entered, I think, since 2021, a new phase. We have seen several exits over the past 18 months. We have seen a lot of companies raising significant rounds much larger than what they have been raising in the past five years. And so we really see that the ecosystem is maturing Also, with the emergence of investors at different stages of the development of the companies. So we see more seed investors, we see more interest from angel investors, and we also see international investors coming from the US and Asia that are increasingly playing a role leading key transactions on the continent. So so we see that definitely the ecosystem is, is very dynamic, it's growing. I think that In the long run, Africa VC and tech entrepreneurship still has a long way to go. Uh, I think it's a sector that has a lot of potential. The main reason being that economies, African economies are still old legacy economies where most of the companies are inherited from the colonial era and there has not been much innovation. And so this makes it ripe for disruption. I think we have one of the youngest continents in the world and All this youth is looking for ways to express itself and entrepreneurship is one of the key ways in which people can shape societies. And I think that being able to fund these entrepreneurs to transform our economies sector by sector, subsector by subsector is something that is going to be profitable and at the same time very impactful for the continent. So I'm very optimistic about the sector for the next decades to come. I think in the short term, we are going to face some adjustments in the next three to five years, because given the speed at which capital has become available, it has probably gone into some companies that are not always good investments. Uh, I think there's a lot of money in the market and maybe a little froth. There's going to be an adjustment, in my opinion, in the coming years and valuations will have to go down. But in the long run, I'm very optimistic about the market. Very much appreciate that nuanced answer. Could you maybe talk just a little bit more about the drivers of the adjustment and what you think it will look like? So in other words, can you talk a little bit more about what you think needs to change and what those changes might look like? Yes, 
Thank you for this question. I, I think the drivers of the adjustment are going to be both internal and specific to the market and also global. I'll start with the global. On the global level, we have very low interest rates that are driving capital into riskier and riskier sectors. Uh, and VC is considered to be one of the riskier asset classes. And it has attracted more and more capital because of the low rates offered by other assets. And VC in emerging markets, you could say, is probably at the tail end in terms of risk and return. And I think a lot of capital has come into the continent in the past year or two. It's not necessarily long-term capital. It's more opportunistic. And so I'm not entirely sure that these one-time investors are going to stay in the long term, except if some of them actually set up funds that are dedicated to the continent. So I think as interest rates are expected to rise in the coming years in developed markets, there will be a little less capital coming from abroad. I think that will be one adjustment factor. One other adjustment factor, which is the most natural one when valuations are too high, is that at some point you will have companies that will have raised significant amount of funds that will not be able to deliver on the promises. And what usually happens when investors realize that they will not be able to recoup their investments or that the company is not going to be successful is that they're either going to try to exit quickly and potentially at a lower valuation than the latest round, or they will just stop funding the company. And so this is going to drive a decrease in valuations, especially, I think, at the later stage and then progressively at the earlier stages. Because what all investors say when I speak to them, whichever the stage, is that the valuation of companies has increased a lot initially at the late stages and more and more at the earlier stages. And no one's really managing to make sense of this, but it's probably driven by the volume of capital. And so I think there will be an adjustment. I think it's important to take into account that Africa has also other specific macroeconomic and political characteristics that are different from the rest of the world. We have foreign exchange risk with devaluations. We have political risk related to the stability of our states. And we also have a quite fragmented continent in terms of regulations and, and markets. And, and so it makes it harder to scale uh, across markets easily. And it makes it also a riskier continent from a macroeconomic standpoint. So that has driven lower valuations in the private equity market, which is now 20, 25 years old. And I think it will also drive lower valuations in the VC market. That's really interesting. So I think the crux of what you are talking about is structural. Now, arguably, the latter half of your point around the market characteristics, political risk, macroeconomic conditions and such should, quote unquote, <laughs> air quotes, should be taken into account when the investment decisions are made. And so they, they should be priced in, supposedly. The other half of what you're mentioning basically has to do with how capital chases yield. So if the interest rates are low, then capital is looking for better yield. The problem, to your point, is that that view is seeking a window, a small window or a temporary window, as opposed to a longer horizon view. So that makes good sense. I guess my last clarification question here, though, is in your view, how would you change 
how capital is allocated. So you've kind of described what the current situation is. You've kind of indicated that there are improvements in terms of more depth across the capital stack. But if you were to sort of design an approach to deploy capital effectively, what would you suggest? I'm not sure there's a single answer to that. I just think that we need more long-term capital. And by long-term capital, I mean funds, I mean corporate venture capital, I mean players that are really committed and dedicated to the continent Mm. and not just trying to take advantage of the latest wave. And we need less tourism capital that's just coming in and potentially impacting the way the market works rather than adding value to the ecosystem. I mean... It's a good thing that African founders get high valuations, but those valuations need to be sustainable because in the end, if the valuations are too high, you you end up in a situation where people are not innovating anymore. They're just trying to outspend their rivals rather than trying to find smart solutions to solve the big problems facing the continent. And therefore, I think that's the main reason why we need a more virtuous ecosystem where it's really the good companies that get the money and people who are doing the work. Yeah, that's another good point. So structure and then also incentive alignment. So the capital needs to be incentivized properly to sort of focus on investing in creating and building value, the value being created and delivered by founders who are trying to solve meaningful problems. That all makes very good sense. Thank you for indulging the follow-up question. So the other part of what the Trajectory Africa is about is essentially informally crowdsourcing the soundtrack for African tech in BC. So if you don't mind, please share your track suggestion and tell me why you picked it. Yes. The song that I really like is the song called Spiritual by Burner Boy. Mm. So I don't know if you already had this one, but what, what I really like in this song, so first the rhythm is, is really great and it talks about the spirituality of African people. But what, what is the most powerful in this song, I think, is the last sentence, which says the following. The message from Berna, I believe, would be that every Black person should please remember that you were Africans before you became anything else. (laughs) Very nice. I think this is a very important sentence. And I also like that I'm invited by an American to speak on this podcast (laughs) as, as an African myself. I think the message behind this, beyond skin color, is to say that there is a common destiny for all African people wherever they are in the world. And it is very important for me to be conscious that Africa has had a very specific place in history over the past several centuries. I'm I'm not speaking only of colonization, but also of slavery and, and what came before. And maybe at some point in our history, we lost track that we had a common destiny and some decisions were taken that that sacrificed part of the population for the benefit of a few. And I think that VC presents a unique opportunity in several decades or even several centuries to really transform how Africa works. And the private sector is definitely one of the key parts of society. And VC has a role in building an Africa that is good for all Africans and not just for a few. And I think this is really important. And we should really remember that we have a common destiny. That's such a fantastic song choice for so 
so many different reasons. Uh, the trivial one first. So I have not had a Burna Boy submission yet. You're the first. Although I almost had a Burna Boy versus WizKid showdown <laughs> that we we definitely avoided. <laughs> Unfortunately, but I'm very happy to see that he has made the list. And I particularly love that line that you are African before anything else because it speaks beautifully, which I'm sure is your intention to the idea of shared experience, shared goals. This is actually something that came up in a different conversation with another Nigerian-American or American-Nigerian. So she's raising a fund, but she's starting to think about the common experiences of Black people in the U.S., on the continent, in the Caribbean, etc. And how the success stories and the challenges of Black people wherever they are found has implications for their brothers and sisters elsewhere. And so... You mentioning my nationality, the fact that I'm a U.S. citizen, that I'm American is also interesting because it's something I thought a lot about in thinking about how I was going to approach this podcast, because I'm very, very keenly aware of the fact that I am a member of the diaspora located in a diaspora and that that brings a very specific um, and in some ways limited point of view. So my aim has been to try to broaden that perspective or sort of to acknowledge it and acknowledge the benefits and, and the drawbacks that come with that perspective, but then also to be in conversation with those who have a different perspective to offer. So I'm really glad that you are willing to lend your really thoughtful, nuanced perspective to this particular conversation in joining as a guest artist, particularly because you were able to shed some really important light on a topic that I think isn't discussed enough. So basically what it means to invest and how to invest from the LP perspective as it pertains to funds in Africa. So thank you so much again, Babakar. It was an absolute pleasure. I you know, really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you, Teo, for the invitation. It's really a pleasure and an honor. Wonderful. Thank you to all of you who are listening. You can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. Until next time.